Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 385. It's titled, Is it time to invest in big tech or medium tech stocks? In July 2011, Netflix announced it would charge separate prices for its DVDs by mail and its streaming video plans. Its customers went ballistic. The stock crashed, falling to $9 in November 2011 from $42 in July 2011. Netflix at the time had about 26 million subscribers. Its subscriber count fell. But even at $9, that's nine times higher than what Netflix stocks was selling for in 2003. Had you bought Netflix back in the early 2000s and held it through this 80% downturn in 2011 through 2021, where the stock in November 2021 was over $600, Then it has collapsed again in April. It's now selling for $200 per share. Those are some huge moves when it comes to an individual stock. I thought about buying Netflix stock in 2011. I felt that the streaming service, which I was a customer, had promise. But I didn't know what the correct valuation was. So I didn't buy that individual stock. I went back to my Mint account to see what I had paid for my Netflix subscription over the years. In July 2011, I was paying $12.71 because I had the DVD service and the streaming service. That fall, I dropped the DVD service, so my monthly payment was $7.99. It stayed that way until July 2016 when Netflix increased their prices to $9.99. In January 2018, I paid $10.99. $12.99 in May 2019. In January 2020, prices were raised again to $13.99. Then in February 2022, the price got raised to $19.99. That got my attention. Now I searched through my emails and apparently, according to Netflix, I upgraded to their premium package where they'll stream at 4K. I don't remember doing it. I canceled Netflix on March 9th. Then on April 19th, Netflix announced that it had lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter. It missed its own projection to add two and a half million customers. These were projections they hadn't made up. They were looking at the trends back in the fourth quarter, but it was a huge miss because they did implement a price increase in early 2022 And apparently, many households canceled. Netflix has 222 million paying households. That's up from 26 million back in 2011. This stock has been a huge win if 
you've been a long-term holder. In a letter to investors, Netflix said that they were testing password-sharing subscription models. That when Netflix was growing so quickly, reducing password sharing wasn't a high priority. Now, in our household, we shared the Netflix password because we've had Netflix since 2009 or so. We had different devices. Our kids grew up and moved on, and we just kept using the same account. I suspect it's similar with your family. After that announcement of the subscriber loss, Netflix stocks fell 40% that day. It is now down 70% from its high. Still, back in 2013, Netflix was selling for $25 a share. Now it's at $200 a share. Robert Armstrong, a columnist for the Financial Times, wrote an article titled, No, You Did Not See the Netflix Mess Coming. He said this Netflix earning surprise was the biggest he's seen, the biggest miss, the biggest one-day sell-off that he's ever been involved with with a public company. But he says it was neither predictable nor overdone, that the financial markets do a pretty good job of pricing things. And he feels like this price is fair. And through that column, he justifies the price. What I found interesting about his column, though, was his comment that he used to write a lot of columns about how expensive tech stocks like Amazon, Facebook, and Netflix were. How competition would eventually slow their growth. I've made similar comments that when you buy a stock, you're saying the market is wrong and that the company will grow faster than what the consensus expects. In this case, Netflix did not. This is a perfect example of seeing a stock plummet after missing expectations of the consensus. Armstrong continued, though. He said those were bad, stupid columns, that they were proven hilariously wrong because those companies did so well. Now he's changed his tune. He thinks investing in huge tech companies is smart and a relatively low-risk way to invest. Is now the time to invest in tech stocks? Are they the safe haven now that we see the Invesco QQQ Trust, an ETF that has many of these big cap technology stocks? That ETF, the top 10 holdings, which includes Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Alphabet, previously known as Google, Meta, previously known as Facebook. Those top 10 holdings make up 53% of that ETF, and it has been an incredibly successful investment. Even though that ETF is down 20% year-to-date, its annualized return over the past three years is 19%. It's had a 19% annualized return over the past five years, 18% annualized return over the past decade. And for the past 15 years, the return has been 15% annualized. Incredible. Hopefully, you have participated in that investment. If anything, if you own the global stock market, such as the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, VT, it's had sizable, meaningful positions in those companies. Now, what Robert Armstrong caused him to change his tune about these big cap technology stocks is he said he's internalized a lot of stuff about zero marginal cost, first mover advantages, natural monopolies, 
W. Brian Arthur, who is an economist that I'll talk about in a few minutes. Limp antitrust enforcement, cost of capital differentials. In other words, these big technology companies, because they're primarily involved in data and in an area where prices are dropping, they have a huge advantage. Lower cost, natural monopolies, and momentum because there's a network effect. Had you invested in what are known by the acronym FANMAG, that's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, Apple, and Google, they have so significantly trounced the competition. This is a study from Dimensional, where they looked at the time period from January 2013 through December 2020. So not even the peak. The peak was toward the end of 2021. But looked at the excess return of these companies. Netflix outperformed the U.S. market during that time frame by 43% annualized. Amazon by 22%. Facebook by 18%. Microsoft by 17%. Apple by 14%. And Alphabet by 7%. This idea of investing in tech companies, that they're safer because of the inherent advantages they have, natural monopolies, was something that I was exposed to way back in the late 90s. There was a board member on one of the university endowments that I advised that was an incredibly successful investor. He managed concentrated portfolios in these big cap technology stocks and was always pestering me to say, why don't we invest the university endowment that way? Been successful strategy for me. Why don't we do it? And I would talk about diversification and the risk of taking such a big bet in technology stocks. And we saw the internet bubble burst, but he continued with his strategy and it has continued to be successful. I recently got an email from a listener that has about a $1.8 million in net worth. He has 300000 in cash and would like to put that cash in five to 10 of these growth stocks, these technology stocks. Wanted to know how he should scale in and I can't answer questions like that via email. But is that a good strategy? Have these companies gotten undervalued? Can we identify which five to 10 companies to invest in? That same report by Dimensional looked at the 10 largest U.S. technology stocks from January 2013. Of those 10, six of them underperformed the overall stock market. IBM lagged, Oracle lagged, Qualcomm, Cisco Systems, Intel, EMC. The winners were Apple and Microsoft, Alphabet and Amazon, as I mentioned. How do you know which particular company? Each period can be different. If we go back to the 1930s and look at the largest contributors to performance of the S&P 500, the largest in the most recent decades has been Apple, this largest contributor to the S&P 500. But back in the 90s, the biggest contributor was General Electric. That was the big cap stock that everyone wanted to hold. In the 50s, it was General Motors. There was times in the 80s when it was AT&T and other times when it's been Coca-Cola. The high momentum dominant company switches over time. So how do we know? Some have said these fan mag stocks are in a bubble. There's some data by Ned Davis Research that looked at prior bubbles. They did a composite of the 1929 Dow Jones Industrial Average. Also in that composite was gold from 
the early 1980s, the Japan stock market bubble in the late 80s, and the NASDAQ 2000 bubble. And they combine those all together. And if you compare that to the FanMag stocks, you'll see that they both go up to the peak. And then those bubbles collapsed and lost 50%. We've seen the FanMag composite off about 25%. That suggests it could fall another 25% or more. So the total drawdown is 50%. But if we look at sentiment toward these stocks, and this is based on newsletter sentiment, newsletter writers, they're extremely bearish and pessimistic regarding the NASDAQ stocks, these big cap technology stocks. And when they have been this bearish, the average return over the next year is up 38%. If we look at valuations, the median PE of these big cap technology stocks is 32 The average, going back to 1985, is 27.4. We're not that far away. We go back to 2000, the 2001 period, and the median, we saw a PE of over 100. So these companies are not that overvalued given their very quick growth rates and given the pessimism. Maybe it is time. But again, which ones do you own? I propose owning a basket. Perhaps you want to purchase QQQ, recognizing it could fall another 25 to 50%. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. 
Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Robert Armstrong mentioned that one of the individuals that has significantly changed his view about investing in big tech is W. Brian Arthur. He is an economist that has worked with the Santa Fe Institute. He's an expert on technology and complexity. And his most recent book from 2014 is Complexity Economics. If you've listened to my podcast for a while now or read my book, you know that complexity and complex adaptive systems is something that I'm fascinated by. It's, it's how I believe the economy works. So I've not read this book. I perused the introduction, and I agree with his definition of complexity economics. He says that the economy is not necessarily in equilibrium. In fact, it's usually non-equilibrium. It's unstable. And that agents that act within the economy, that would be individuals, companies, central bankers, political leaders, they're not all-knowing or perfectly rational. They just make sense of situations that they're in. They're trying to explore different things, trying to figure it out, that these agents explore choices using whatever reason is at hand. And then as they make choices, that actually impacts the economy. There's a feedback loop. When it comes to technology, Arthur writes that the economy is is not a simple container that contains a bunch of technologies, but the economy is more organic and that technologies combine and form together in ever-changing novel ways. One of the words I've used in the past is the adjacent possible, that this technology gets all thrown together, one builds on the other, and you can get these dominant technology companies that typically haven't invented something novel. They're building on what was already there, and they get that momentum. But it's highly uncertain, highly unpredictable, which means most companies, company management, and individuals, we're just coping. We're muddling through, building on what is there, seeing what evolves based on what we're doing. We have an inventory of skills and ideas, and we try different things. And when something works, we double down and continue. The fact that Netflix management missed by such a big amount for a prediction that was only a couple months old indicates how challenging it is. Consequently, when we think about this, this listener that's thinking about buying or scaling in the 10 to 15 growth stocks, what will impact growth stock investing, these big cap technology stocks? We're in the process of money for the rest of us of compiling our monthly investment conditions and strategy report. And there's really three scenarios, and I've alluded to these in the podcast. Inflation could be brought under control. Interest rates with the 10-year treasury now over 3% could stabilize. There will be a soft landing, a slowing of the economy, lower interest rates, or at least stabilizing, and that would be a great environment for tech stocks and growth stocks in general. That's one scenario. The other is inflation is brought under control, but not before we get a recession, a economic contraction. That would lead to a further drop in tech stocks but an eventual recovery as the economy rebounds. The third scenario is inflation isn't brought under control. That interest rates, the Fed's policy rate, has to be raised even higher than it is now, much higher than most of us have seen in decades. 
we get a deep recession, but inflation stays. We get stagflation, something we discussed a number of episodes ago. That would be bad for tech stocks and bad for the overall stock market. We don't know which of these scenarios will have an impact. The economy is organic, ever-changing. As Arthur writes, it shows perpetual novelty, and structures within it appear, persist for a while, and melt back into it again. These structures can include big-cap technology stocks that maybe they dominate for a while, but now they're not, and that's what makes it so challenging. Some of the other structures that have occurred that have influenced the return of technology stocks. There are way more younger investors now than there have ever been. Gen Z investors, on average, begin investing at a younger age than previous generations, according to a survey by Credit Donkey. They have more financial knowledge, access to the internet. They're smarter investors. Apex Clearing Corporation, they're a broker-dealer that provides services to other broker-dealers. They showed of the 6 million accounts that were opened in 2020, 1 million belonged to investors that had an average age of 19. That's a 137% increase. These investors have smaller account sizes. The average account at Robinhood, where many of these young investors opened their first account, is only $3,500. And the median, the middle, $240. These investors have benefited from a development that's, that's only been in place since 2019. Many of these brokers, including Robinhood, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, have begun offering fractional trading, the ability to trade less than the full share price. So even though a stock might be priced at 1000 investors can look at it and buy $10 worth of the stock. The way fractional trading works is the broker within its own organization will match buyers and sellers or will use another broker to help do that. That has had a huge impact on the stock market. It's meant more frequent trading by these young investors. Retail trading accounts now account for more volume, trading volume than mutual funds and hedge funds. Retail trades make up 30% of U.S. equity volume. If we look at Robinhood, which back in 2020 had about $81 billion in assets, way less than E-Trade at $600 billion, or TD Ameritrade at $1.3 trillion, Charles Schwab at $3.8 trillion. So Robinhood was much smaller. Yet Robinhood's traders, these individuals with small account balances participating in fractional trading, made up about 30% of daily trades, even though they're, they're so much smaller. That's a big change to the financial markets. There's also more herding with these investors, where Robinhood will post the biggest winners and losers of individual stocks, and then Robinhood account holders will bid them up, and they'll see the price move even more. I saw one academic study that showed for the top 0.5% of those stocks, those that, that had the biggest move, on average, they lost 5% over the subsequent month which is what you see sometimes when there's hurting. It can push up a price, but ultimately there can be losses. Some of those stocks within that study fell 20% when there was huge interest that drove up the price of stocks. In fact, some institutional investors take advantage of that because most retail investors aren't shorting stocks, betting that they'll fall. Institutional investors will short the stocks that they see pop based on what these individual investors do. And so smaller trades, more trades leads to more volatility of these stocks. But potentially it can be a good thing because then it broadens out 
the type of owners. Where Berkshire Hathaway, where the stock is incredibly expensive, the ability to buy fractional shares has allowed more investor types to own the stocks. There were conflicting studies. One said these Robinhood investors, younger investors, underperformed. Whereas others said, no, they, once you adjust for the risk, they're doing just fine, in line with expectations. One of the things that has changed with fractional trading, and in this listener, we went back and forth a little bit, he felt these big cap technology stocks should do stock splits, which would drop the price, increase the number of shares, and that would drive these stock prices higher. And it used to be that way. It, it's not intuitive. But if you can't purchase Apple because one share is too expensive, if there's a stock split, maybe you can. And that increased demand can push up the stock. But now they're finding with this fractional trading that stock splits don't have the same impact that they did. It doesn't lead to excess returns of the stocks that split because now everybody can actually buy less than one share of a stock. The fact that the market has changed, the market makeup has changed, makes it even more difficult to predict whether big cap technology stocks, middle-sized companies will continue to outperform. We just don't know. That's the nature of investing. Robert Armstrong, in finishing up his column, writes, I propose the Netflix smash-up is evidence that, because of the distortions of COVID-19, and inflation too, this is a moment of genuinely high uncertainty for investors in general. This is a dangerous claim to make because all moments feel uncertain to investors. Doubt is the water we swim in. But remember, he writes, Netflix management team said just three months ago that they would add two and a half million subscribers in the first quarter, and they lost 200,000. If I'm right about this, Armstrong continues, this is a moment for conservative portfolio allocations and avoiding high valuations. Don't pay up for what you can't reasonably forecast. In a complex economy, we really can't forecast anything. We just don't know. We have scenarios that could play out, like I've described, but generally we stay in the pool, even though the water is uncertain. We diversify. We can use an asset garden approach where you have a variety of asset types. Perhaps you speculate by buying 10 to 15 growth stocks, big technology stocks, with money that you won't miss if they fall another 50%. I've had a number of conversations recently with friends that have said they'll potentially have to delay their retirement based on what's going on in their 401k. We don't want to be in that situation. We don't want our retirement to be based on what the stock market does in the coming year. No, that is staking your retirement on your ability to forecast the stock market. And it's not a situation we want to be in. As we start approaching retirement, we want to make sure we have some guaranteed income sources that will allow us to live. This individual that wrote me about buying 10 to 15 growth stocks, investing $300,000, he has a net worth of $1.8 million. He has some conservative investments. So this will not ruin his retirement if they don't work out. For most of us, we probably don't even want to take that risk. We can own the global stock market and benefit from the surge of some companies as, as markets evolve 
not betting on any one specific company, having the hubris to suggest the price is wrong and the company will do better than what everyone expects. Because we don't know. Perhaps do it for fun, but don't bet your retirement on big cap technology stocks. Just include them as part of the overall mix. That's episode 385. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that, but have you subscribed to my email newsletter, The Insider's Guide? It's where each week I share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to a list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love for you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for The Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for over seven years. Plus membership gives you the tools and resources you need to manage your investment portfolio. Not only do you get access to my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but Money for the Rest of Us Plus has partnered with top-tier institutional research firms such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSEI, and Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to an institutional research service that can cost upwards of $10,000 per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more about Plus membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.